We are going to be in Matthew 24, of course, because we're discussing the Olivet Discourse. This is part six of our study of the Olivet Discourse. There are going to be ten parts all together. The other place I want you to open up to would be Daniel chapter 9, all right? Daniel chapter 9 and Matthew 24. With this sixth lesson of our study of the greatest prophetic discourse of all time, which is what the Olivet Discourse is, the greatest prophetic discourse of all time. We're going to move into, if you look at your outline at the beginning of the book, again, we're going to move into the Lord's third section of his panoramic account of the end time scenario. And we are going to consider his specific signs. Did you notice that word specific? We're going to discuss his specific signs of the end of the tribulation. He's already presented to us or to his men some general signs or labor pain indicators that will identify the first three and a half years of the tribulation known as the beginning of sorrows, right? And what were they? False Christs, wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. And he has already given us, or his men, some general signs that have to do with those final three and a half years of the tribulation known as the, the Great Tribulation. And uh, they, they are signs that would characterize the Great Tribulation. Now, you know the labor pains will go throughout the whole thing. Just like labor pains when you're giving birth continue until you deliver the baby. So the labor pains will go on. The famines, pestilences, wars, all the way to the end. But they will, you know, begin in the beginning of sorrows. But they'll continue to, till the Lord Jesus is delivered to this earth at the end. But the general signs of the last three and a half years, the Great Tribulation, were that there would be persecution of the saints, there would be a proliferation of sin, and there would be a total lawlessness so that even those professing believers, their love for the Lord, their quote-unquote love for the Lord, would wax cold. But now, as we come to today's lesson, what the Lord did in verses 15 to 28 is he backed up in his chronology and he takes us back to the middle of the tribulation to give us four very specific, not general signs anymore, but he's going to give us four very specific signs that would indicate his soon return. And the first of them is what is known as the abomination of desolation, which is the subject and the only subject for our study this morning. We're going to look at the other three specific signs next week, Lord willing, but today we're going to focus on the abomination of desolation, and that is the subtitle for our lesson today, the abomination of desolation. So with that short introduction, let's look at the text, and I'm going to read Matthew 24, starting at verse 15 where Jesus says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Why would people be up on the housetop? That's kind of a strain. You know, back in those days they had flat housetops and they spent a lot of their day up there. He says in verse 18, Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, pregnant ladies, and those to them that are, uh, give suck, those who are nursing in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter. 
neither on the Sabbath day. Why? Because all these things will hinder your progress. You need to, when you see the abomination of desolation set up in the holy place, he's telling the tribulation saints, the Jewish people, get out of there just as fast as you can. Don't let anything hinder your flight. And then he says in verse 21, for then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time no nor ever shall be and except those days should be shortened which in the greek is actually amputated or mutilate um, mutilated or shortened amputated there should no flesh be saved but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened then if any man shall say unto you now remember, he's speaking to tribulation saints and Jewish people who have taken heed of his word and have fled Jerusalem and Judea and gone into the wilderness somewhere to hide from the persecution of the Antichrist. And he's speaking to them when he says, if anyone comes out to you and says, look, you know, lo, here is the Christ. He's come back. What does he say? Believe it not. Don't come out of hiding don't believe them. He says, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great, and, great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, it's not, but if it were, they shall deceive the very elect. If it were possible, because they're going to be out there trying to persuade the people that Christ has returned. You can come out of hiding. All is safe now. Don't believe it. But they're going to be very persuasive because they'll be performing satanic miracles. And if it was possible, they could even deceive the very elect. And remember, there's not going to be any, as they start the second half of the tribulation, there aren't going to be any true believers that are more than three and a half years old in the Lord. Right? all kind of basically young Christians. Verse 25, he says, Behold, I have told you before. I'm warning you ahead of time. Listen to me. Wherefore, if they, who's they, the false Christ, the false prophets, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he, Christ, is in the desert, go not forth. Don't believe them. If they say, Behold, he is in the secret chambers, maybe, you know, they'll say, the Christ has returned and he's hiding in the, in the, underneath the temple. You can come out now. Uh, what does he say again? Believe it not. So how will they know when the true Christ does come? There will be no doubt about it. Here's how they can know. Even if they're hiding in a deepest cave somewhere, like where David hid from Saul. Uh, even if they're in an underground shelter of some kind, they will know when the true Christ returns. Because, he says, for as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And then our text ends with these sad words, for wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. All right, now go back to verse 15, where this starts in verse 15. The Lord gave the specific sign that will divide the two halves of the tribulation. It was also the sign that would warn both the Jews living in Israel and the Christians of the tribulation world that massive persecution was about to begin. And that sign, which is the most significant sign of the entire tribulation, had been previously predicted 
in the Old Testament by Old Testament prophets, such as Isaiah. Now, I don't know if you can keep your place in two, two, two places, Daniel and Matthew, but also go over to Isaiah. You may want to look at this for yourself to see it. But in Isaiah 10, verse 20, Isaiah wrote these words. He says, And it shall come to pass in that day, and he is speaking about the day of the Lord, the end times, he says that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Israel, this is Isaiah 10, 20, he says that the remnant in the last days, such as those that have escaped, that tells us something. Those that have escaped out of the house of Israel tells us that there will indeed be those Jews who heed the Lord's words here in the Olivet Discourse, his warning sign, and his warning words, when you see the abomination of desolation, get out of there. There will be those who will have this book. They'll read those words and they'll obey. And they will get out of there. Isaiah told us that back in 1020, that they will escape. And they shall, he goes on to say, and they shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, which means they won't rely upon the one who smote them. Who's the one who will smite them? The Antichrist. But they will stay, meaning they will rely upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. That was given by Isaiah long, long time ago. Certainly a long time from when the tribulation will, will um, take place. He was predicting a time when most of Israel will be slaughtered by an enemy she had previously believed to be her friend. Just like David was betrayed by one he thought was his friend. Who was he? Ahithophel. And just like Jesus was betrayed by a friend, right? Judas Iscariot. So too, Israel will suffer a vicious betrayal and subsequent slaughtering by one in whom she had very unwisely placed her trust. And he is known as the Antichrist. Isaiah also goes on to state that only a remnant shall return safely after it is all over. You know, after the Battle of Armageddon is ended by the Lord's second coming, there will be a remnant that will consist of those 144,000 sealed Jewish witnesses plus those who escaped and uh, managed to go into hiding and, and endure until the end of the tribulation. There will be a remnant, but uh, both Zechariah 13 and Jeremiah tell us that that remnant will be small. One-third of the Jews living in Israel will survive. Two-thirds will be slaughtered by the Antichrist and persecution. So they'll survive, but it will be at great price, a great price. So we have, and we have other Old Testament prophets that tell us about these things, but who is the primary Old Testament prophet that most of us think about when it comes to the subject of the abomination of desolation. Right. We had a big hint because Jesus himself told us that in verse 15. Um, he reminded his disciples here of Daniel's prediction, and here's why I want you to go over to Daniel 9 now, when Daniel referred to the abomination of desolation in the last days. Now, in order to understand this sign, this specific sign of the abomination of desolation, we need to study the passages of the book of Daniel that speak of it. And there are two or three, but I'm not going to talk about any of them except the one that we find 
in the magnificent 70 weeks prophecy, which is the greatest prophecy in all the word of God, probably other than Genesis 3.15. Um, the, the, the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, is the greatest prophecy because it expands, you know, it covers the most time and it is so very, very specific. It's just incredible. If you ever have any doubts at all about whether this book was written by God, restudy the 70 weeks prophecy and all your doubts will go flying away. It's incredible. And we have a mini album on it if you want to study it in more detail. You'll get probably confused today if you've never studied it before as I give you some figures, but don't worry about it. Just Make sure you get the bottom line of what I'm saying about it, all right? Don't let the numbers I give you confuse you. But um, it's, this is an exciting day today because not only are we in the text of the greatest prophetic discourse ever given by the greatest prophet who ever lived, the Olivet Discourse, but we're also talking about the greatest prophecy, single prophecy, in the Word of God, which is the 70 weeks prophecy. So you put those two together, and this is an important subject, the abomination of desolation. Well, the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel 9, verse 24 to 27 um, as I said, is uh, one of the greatest prophecies. And it was given to Daniel while he was still a captive in where? Babylon. You know, he had uh, been taken as a young boy, probably 13, 14 years old, by King Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. And he had been there almost 70 years as a captive. And he was reading the writings of Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah had written his book right prior to the captivity of, of Judah into Babylon. And so Daniel had his scrolls, Jeremiah's scrolls, and he was reading them. And he read in Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12, that the Jewish captivity in Babylon would only last for 70 years. And he realized that those 70 years were almost complete. And so Daniel gets down on his knees. Don't you love Daniel? I do. He is, the, he is one of the most incredible characters other than Jesus Christ in the whole Bible because even his enemies couldn't find anything bad to say about him except that he prayed faithfully three times a day. Now, I would love people to, that would be the only thing that could say negative about me because that isn't really a negative, is it? But anyway, he prayed to God and he desired to know from God what would happen uh, in God's future program for Israel. Now, he had had a lot of uh, visions and dreams. He had two, but he also interpreted one that King Nebuchadnezzar had. He had had a lot of dreams and visions about what would happen in the future with regard to the Gentile nations of the world. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream? Couldn't remember the dream, <laughs> but he wanted it interpreted, and Daniel was able to not only remind him of what his dream was, but then interpret it for him, and it was about a giant colossus statue that represented all the Gentile nations of the world from that point on. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and the revived Roman Empire, you know, represented by the ten toes of that statue. And then Daniel had had a dream himself, in chapter 2 where he dreamt of a, a lion and a bear and a leopard and then a composite horrible beast which again represented Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome and then in chapter 7 he had another dream about a ram and a he-goat which again was about Gentile nations so he knew what was going to go on with them but now he says God what's the future for Israel you haven't given me any visions you haven't told me anything about the future for Israel and it's fascinating to find that even while Daniel was still down on his knees praying, God sent Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, to give Daniel the answer to his prayer, to give him his God's overall program for the nation of Israel. And Gabriel, when he finally got, you know, there's a spiritual warfare going on, but when he finally got through the, um, <laughs> the atmospheric warfare there going on, you know, we can't see the spiritual realm, but it is there. And it's very active. 
I was uh, laying out in the sun yesterday afternoon because it was such a beautiful day, and I was studying, and I was just soaking up the rays and enjoying it. And I thought, you know, Lord, it would be so interesting if I could see what was, you know, <laughs> all that was going on up in the heavens with the, the demons and the angels, et cetera, et cetera. And just as I said that, this giant eagle flew over. I, oh, <laughs> kind of interesting. But anyway, Daniel, uh, Gabriel, when he did get through to give uh, Daniel um, the answer to his prayer, he gave him the divine program for Israel. And he told him that it would be accomplished in seven peri- uh, 70, 70 periods of sevens. Now, if you look at verse 24, it says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people. Who, who are thy people? Daniel's people, the Jews, and upon thy holy city. And here's what, you know, when the 70 weeks of years... Now, the word weeks is a Hebrew word that means a seven-year week. So what you have to do is you take 70 weeks, 70 times 7, so the whole program is going to be 490 years long. God's program for Israel is going to take 490 years to accomplish. And when he is finished with Israel, these are the six things that will be accomplished. Look at verse 24. He will finish the transgression. Has Israel transgressed against God? Oh, yeah. And to make an end of sins. And to make reconciliation for iniquity. It's one thing to get rid of the sins, but you have to be reconciled too, right? Those first three purposes of God have to do with Israel's sin of rebelling against him and, and rejecting her long-awaited Messiah, God's son. But, you know, you can do something with sin, but you get rid of your sin, but you need to also have then what? Righteousness. You get rid of the sin, but you have to have righteousness. And so then the second three things he will d- deal with will be her righteousness, it says, and to make... Uh, no, I already read that. And to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. All that has to do with after Christ comes back and Israel is made righteous and it talks about the millennial kingdom in those last three. I don't have time to develop all that, but I think some of it's in your notes. Well, the 490 years of Daniel's prophecy are divided into three time segments. And here's where I might lose some of you, but just hang on and don't worry about it. And you can study it more on your own when you do your homework. Um, the first consists of 49 years, which would be a seven, seven weeks. Seven times seven is 49. The next is the biggest span. It covers 434 years. And the last consists of one week, which would be seven years. What's that last one? The tribulation, the last seven years. All right, now history. So we say, why, why did Daniel, or why did Gabriel, God, give Gabriel to give to Daniel these three segments? Well, history tells us why the first segment was 49 years. And it's because it took 49 years for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And we see that in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks and the street, street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Well, I know it's confusing, but it took 49 years. You remember, Nehemiah received the decree that he could go ahead. He was the king's cupbearer at the time, uh, King Artaxerxes, and he received a decree that he could go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the city. And he began with the wall, which took him uh, 52 days, I believe. But it took 49 years 
to complete rebuilding Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar came over and took Israel into captivity, and the temple had been destroyed. So, you know, Nehemiah was responsible for going back and starting the rebuilding and everything. Well, that, that explains the first 49 years. All right, then we have added to the first 49 years for uh, the second time segment, which consists of 434 years. Well, that, if you add it in the weeks, 434. 434. But you have to add the first 49 to the 434, and you'll get the first 69 weeks. Let's just do it that way. It's easier. It Actually, 69 weeks times 7 equals 483 years. So if you want to forget about the 49, you can. Um, but it was very specific because Daniel was told that they would rebuild the, even the street and the city in troublous times. And if you know anything about Nehemiah, there was a lot of enemies, you know, Sanballat and the others were fighting again. They didn't want them to rebuild the city. It was a very specific prophecy. But anyway, the first, what, what Daniel was told by Gabriel was that she, Israel, could know precisely the day she could expect her Messiah. All they had to do was do the calculations. Um, if you take the 69 weeks, weeks meaning 7, 69 times 7 equals 483 years. We have to make one adjustment because the ancients used a lunar calendar and we today use a solar calendar. A lunar calendar has 360 days in a year, whereas a solar calendar is 365 and sometimes 366, right? So you have to do that adjustment. But the easiest way to do it is to just translate the years into days. So if you translate 300, I'm sorry, 483 years into days, it equals 173,880 days, Okay. That's in your notes. You don't have to remember it. It's not important anyway. Well, it is important because God gave it to Israel, and they had the figure. And Daniel was told that the time clock for Israel, her total 490 years, would begin ticking. God's prophetic time clock for Israel would begin ticking when a decree was issued to go ahead and start rebuilding Jerusalem. And we know from Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, precisely the day when Artaxerxes issued that decree and gave it to Nehemiah. God was very, con very conveniently gave the Jews the date. And it happened to be March 14th. What is today? March 9th. We're just a few days off. March 14th, 445 B.C. That was the day the, issue, the decree was issued. Now, if you go 173,880 days from the issuing of that decree, do you know where you wind up? Palm Sunday, yes. Now, Bible scholars who are much more intelligent than I am have done the calculations, such as Sir Robert Anderson, and they come to the day when you count forward, they come to the day, April 6th, 32 A.D. Hmm. What do you think happened on that day? And even if they're off a little bit, you've got to admit, God, God was right on the number, even if, you know, scholars can't quite 
agree if it was 32 A.D. or 31 A.D. or 33 A.D. or whatever it was. I know God knew that it was precisely the day that Jesus officially presented himself as Israel's Messiah. Very close, right? April 6th, 32 A.D. I know God was right on the number. And that makes us really understand then why on that day, as he was on his little donkey, fulfilling not only Zechariah 9.9 and Genesis 49.11 and many other scriptures that we talked about when we did our study on Palm Sunday, but also Daniel chapter 9 to the very day, that helps us to understand why when he got to the Mount of Olives and had that panoramic view of Jerusalem, it says in Luke he wept. And what did he say to her? He said, If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. He was crying because he knew you guys had all the information you needed. You could have calculated to this thy day and have had peace. He knew the future. He knew they weren't going to reject him. Yeah, they were going to wave their palm branches and say hail to the son of David, but they didn't really accept him as their Messiah. And the sad thing about all this to me is that I believe with all my heart that those scribes who studied the scripture and those Pharisees, that they knew that this fulfilled Daniel chapter 9. They did their little homework, and they knew he was born in Bethlehem, Africa. They knew this was the day. But they didn't like him, and they didn't want him to be their king, and that was willful unbelief, and they didn't share that with the people. And therefore, Jerusalem to this day has not had the peace she could have had, right? No wonder he wept, and he said, But now these things are hidden from thy eyes, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Well, Daniel was also informed by Gabriel that the Messiah would be cut off. Look at that. Where is that? In verse 26, he would be cut off after the first 483 years, after the first 69 weeks. He would be cut off. But what does it say? But look at it. But not for himself. Was Jesus cut off? Was he crucified for himself, for his own sins? Mm -mm. He was crucified not for himself. He was crucified for the sins of the world. He died in our place. He had no sin. And then the next thing God revealed to Daniel was that both Jerusalem and the sanctuary would be destroyed. By whom? By the people of the prince that shall come. You see that in verse 26? The and that happened. We know. We've already studied that. That happened in 70 A.D. And who were the people who destroyed Jerusalem? Remember, it was God's day of vengeance on that generation that crucified his son. And the people he used were the Romans. And the prince, therefore, is going to be the prince of the... Well, I'll talk about that in a minute. Anyway, so f some 500 years before Christ was even born, Daniel predicted, number one, the rejection and death of Christ. He, he also uh, predicted the ruin of Jerusalem and the temple, the sanctuary. And three, the ravaging of the people. It says, uh, where is this? At the end of verse 26. You know, after the temple and the city and the sanctuary destroyed, he says, there, thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. He also predicted the ravaging of the people. 
you know, as a flood. And we know, we studied this, that after the temple was destroyed, well, when they had the siege on Jerusalem, about 100,000 people died. Remember how many, even those escaping, were put on crosses and crucified, and it was a horrible time for the Jews, and then they were scattered to the four corners of the earth. So Daniel predicted all those things. You know, a lot of critics, the liberals, love to to uh, critique the book of Daniel. They don't like the book of Daniel because Daniel is full of so many prophecies that have come true and are going to come true. And so they, crit- they critique Daniel probably more than even Revelation. And they say Daniel didn't even write the book of Daniel until many years later. He didn't write it back in 500 B.C. when he was in captivity in Babylon. He wrote it after all these things had happened which is a bunch of baloney and it can be proven. But what did Jesus call Daniel? Daniel the prophet. So if you don't believe Daniel, you don't believe Jesus. And you know, on the very day, actually on the very day of his official presentation of himself to Israel, the Lord Jesus likewise predicted Jerusalem's destruction, just as Daniel had. And that we saw over in Luke 19, 41 to 44. And then two days later, on Tuesday of the Passion Week, which is the day we're still talking about, right? Told you we'd be on it for a long, long time. We're still on Tuesday. He predicted the desolation and the destruction of the temple. And that was what set the disciples off. That's what caused them to ask their questions in, in Matthew 24, 3, which then launched the Lord into giving the discourse we are now studying. Well, the third segment of time given to Daniel was a final week of 70 year, uh, seven years, the 70th week, all right? Remember, the whole, his whole program, God's whole program for Israel will last how many years? 490. Now, the first 69 of those 70 years have already been fulfilled, but God's time clock for Israel stopped ticking the minute Israel crucified her Messiah. And, and the 70th week has not yet occurred. What was between the 69th and 70th week? What we know is the church age. We're still living in the gap of time between the 69th and 70th week. Okay? The church age. Not during the whole church age, which has been some 2,000 years now, not one second has ticked off on God's prophetic time clock for Israel. He's not working with Israel right now. She's been set aside for the time. Now he is working primarily with the church. When the church is out of here, he will again, the time clock will again start ticking, and it will tick. It will start ticking when the Antichrist confirms a covenant with many. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I wanted to bring this point out. The church was not around at all during the first 69 weeks of years. Was she? No. Nobody had even heard of the church. Nobody, even when he's talking to the disciples, they don't have a clue about the church. So she wasn't around during the first 69 years. Is Jesus Christ not the same today, yesterday, and forever? Is he not consistent? So why would she be around for the 70th week? She isn't going to be. We weren't involved in the first 69 years. We're not going to be involved in the last seven years, the last year of seven years, last week of seven years. (laughs) So you know what that is a support for? Again, 
pre-tribulation rapture. We are not going to be here if you're truly born again. You will not be here during the tribulation. And isn't that good news? <laughs> All right. In Daniel 9.27, we are informed of the sign event that will again cause God's time clock, as I said, to begin ticking for Israel. And it is when he, I'll talk about he in a minute, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, which is one week of seven years. Now, English teachers, Joan, um, when you have a pronoun like he, what is the proper thing to do? You have to go back to see what the he, who the he refers to, right? So the he is in verse 27. You have to go back to verse 26 to see who the he is referring to. And it is the prince of the people who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, which we know from history were the Romans. Therefore, the prince who shall confirm the covenant with many will be a Roman ruler. The people who destroyed Israel were, in 70 AD, were Romans. So he'll be a Roman ruler, which doesn't necessarily mean that he will be Italian, <laughs> but it means that he will be a prince, a ruler over whatever form of the revived Roman Empire will be in the end times, whether it'll be you know, something global consisting of 10 confederations of nations, or if it will be, as it looks like it may be, the European Union, the president of the European Union. But he will be a ruler over the revived Roman Empire. Now, Gabriel indicated that, and we know him also as uh, the dreadful and terrible beast with the great iron teeth that is mentioned in Daniel, and he's also the little horn. He has many, many names, the lawless one, but we know him primarily as the Antichrist. He will be the Antichrist. Now, Gabriel indicated that the Antichrist will do several significant things during the final seven-year period um, of time decreed for Israel. First of all, as I just mentioned, he will confirm the covenant with many for one week. Now, when it says, it doesn't say a covenant, does it? It says the covenant. What covenant was Gabriel talking about here? When he says the covenant, it sounds like it's something Daniel should know about. You know, the covenant and that the, the Jewish people should know about. And in fact, they should know about it because Isaiah had written about the covenant. In fact, Isaiah 18 calls it that covenant with death that Israel would make in the latter days. She will make a covenant with death and also, Isaiah called it, an agreement with hell. Hmm. Death and hell. Sounds like that fourth horseman of the apocalypse, doesn't it? Death with hell riding behind. She'll make an agreement with hell. And... Um, Isaiah 18 goes on to say that that covenant shall not stand. You know what that means? It won't last. You're going to sign this horrible agreement that isn't going to last, and it will result in an overflowing scourge passing through the land and trotting over the people. That's from Isaiah. He warned Israel long ago, but she's going to sign it anyway. She should pay more attention to her scriptures, shouldn't she? Shouldn't all people, not just Israel? Well, since the total 490 years of Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy deal with the people of Israel, we can conclude, therefore, that the covenant with many 
will be the covenant with Israel. That's the one, you know, Antichrist will sign it. He'll make his deceptive covenant with the people of Israel. Now, also the word many is not the word all. The word many suggests that it will be a majority of the people who will agree to this covenant, but there will be a minority who will not want to agree with it, but the majority will rule. That's the way it always is, isn't it? Um, in a democracy, at least. But is the majority always right? Seldom. <laughs> it seems like seldom is the majority right. But anyway, um, the majority of the Jews will gladly accept it because the Jewish people, if there's one thing they want right now, it is protection from all of their many, many enemies, actually worldwide, globally. And Isaiah goes on to say that they will make lies their refuge and hide themselves under falsehoods. Well, the covenant will strongly commit Israel's loyalty to the Antichrist and his empire. This covenant will bind Israel to the Antichrist so firmly that she will practically be seen as an extension of him in the Middle East. Therefore, you see, any attack on Israel will be seen as an attack on the Antichrist. Because the Antichrist is going to come in and he is going to pretend to be Israel's good buddy. If he is the president of the European Union, he may be the one who says, Israel wants to get into the European Union. Did you know that? He may be the one to say, okay, and it takes a seven-year period of trial. Come on, we'll let you in. And we'll, you know, I'll, I'll make sure you're protected from all your Muslim enemies and those who want to annihilate you. And I believe that it will be the Antichrist who will actually permit Israel to build her temple or to go into the mosque of, of Omar and cleanse it and use it. He, and, you know, that will definitely get Israel's uh, approval, uh, you know, commitment to him. She'll think he is the best friend that she has ever had. He'll be so smooth, I'll tell you. But um, anyway, so any attack against Israel will be like an attack against the Antichrist because he'll look like he's her protector, right? So I believe, and you know, I'm just speculating here, but I believe that the war of Gog and Magog, which you know you can read about in Ezekiel 38 and 39, will happen sometime during the first three and a half years, the beginning of sorrows. That um, that will be Russia with her allies, Muslim allies, who will come from the north to attack and annihilate Israel. Now, that will be like seen as an attack against the Antichrist. And we know, because we talked about this last week, that the Lord God will mightily intervene and he will wipe out five-sixths of that army, not only with an earthquake, but with a disease and, and hail and fire and brimstone and whatever else was involved. Um, but, and Israel will understand and know that that was God's intervention. And she, Israel, will turn back to her belief in God. Right now she's pretty much atheistic and agnostic and very liberal. Did you see that, Karen? I mean, very secular. The Orthodox Jews are there, but they're in the minority. Um, <clears throat> Karen was just in Israel. You'll have to give us a report. But anyway, um, that will get Israel's attention back to God, and that's why she'll be anxious, you know, to join the Orthodox Jews and start re, um, 
instating the whole Levitical sacrificial system in the temple. She won't return to, I mean, she won't believe in Jesus yet, but at least her faith will again be in God, the God of the Old Testament. But the world of unbelievers are going to look at what happened there in the War of Gog and Magog, and you know who they are going to attribute the victory to? The Antichrist. They're going to say, wow, look what he did. Now, he won't have lifted a finger, (laughs) but they're going to attribute the victory to him, and they're going to say, as we read in Revelation, who is like unto the beast? Who can make war with him? That's Revelation 13, 14. So, you know, then the world will admire him. Well, the second activity predicted by Gabriel regarding the Antichrist and given to Daniel will prove the Antichrist to be anything but a friend of Israel, her protector and friend. In the middle of the week, we were told, we're told here in Daniel, um, at the three and a half year mark, middle of the week, the Antichrist is going to put a sudden screeching halt to the whole Levitical system of sacrifices and offerings going on in the temple. Let's look at that a minute. Look at verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And then it says, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make desolate. All right, so everything's going smoothly for those first three and a half years, other than famines and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and false Christs and all the rest of it, but there's no persecution or anything. And for Israel, ah, she thinks she's finally got some peace because uh, she can, again, feel safe from her neighbors because this Antichrist and and the revived Roman Empire are protecting her. And she can worship God again in a, in a rebuilt temple there, the tribulation temple. And everything looks like it's hunky-dory for her. And all of a sudden, it comes to a screeching halt. He stops everything. This, um, now, this 500 B.C. prophecy tells us something interesting. It tells us that in the end times, Israel would be again in the land. Now, remember, when Daniel received this prophecy, he's in Babylon And nobody but a bunch of Samaritans are in the land of Israel. And Israel didn't come back to the land until what year? 1948. But, of course, God knew that way back, 500 B.C. So not only does this tell us that Israel will be back in the land, but she'll again have her temple, and she'll again have reinstated the whole entire Old Testament sacrificial system of Judaism. So we ask this question. You know, the temple's going to be judged by God. God is sovereign. He's orchestrating all the events. He's even, you know, the Antichrist is even his puppet, really. Um, why, does, why does God judge this temple? Why does he allow the abomination of desolation to be set up in it? He could stop that, right? Why does he allow it? Because after all, you know, aren't the people worshiping him? Why would he destroy a temple that is supposedly worshiping him? Why did he destroy Herod's temple so that not one stone is left upon another? I just read something. I'm going to go on a rabbit trail here. Probably better not. But I just was reading something last night that I'd never thought about. You know how he said not one stone would be left upon another in the temple? And the Muslims use that to say they don't even, they're spreading the lie that there was no temple ever in Jerusalem, a Jewish temple. No first temple, no second temple. And they've got many of the Muslims believing that. And they say, okay, if there was a temple, where are the stones? 
you know, there's no stones that they can prove. You know, if you go to a ruin somewhere, like the synagogue in Capernaum, there's stones still left there. Roman, you know, Greek, there's, there's stones. There aren't any stones left at the of magnificent Herod's temple. So the Muslims say, okay, there was no temple. You just made all that up. Do you know why there are no stones? Of course, number one, Jesus said not one stone would be left upon another. I don't know what happened to those stones. I guess they used them to build other things. Um, but it's because God was making room for the living stones that would build up his spiritual temple. You and I are living stones. We're the temple now. So that temple was disappeared. It was judged because it was corrupt, wasn't it? They, and even when Jesus was there, they didn't know that the Shekinah glory veiled behind human flesh had, was in the temple. So he judged that temple. He's going to also judge the tribulation temple. Why? Because that whole reinstated sacrificial system of Judaism is a terrible insult to his son, the Lamb of God, who ended all of that. You know, he was the once for all sacrifice for the sins of the whole world and Israel. That's why the veil was rent. There's no need for that sacrificial system anymore. So when they reinstate that, it's an insult to Jesus Christ, God's son. So he's going to judge it. He's going to allow the Antichrist to set up. Excuse me, the abomination of desolation. I get so excited. <sighs> Did you notice? All right. Anyway, <clears throat> where was I? Um, the, the Jews. The Jews are indeed back in their homeland today. Do you know, another rabbit trail, um, just recently, the Prime Minister of Israel, who is a fantastic man, I love him. Every time he comes on television, I love to watch him and hear him because he is so intelligent. And I pray for his salvation. Pray for Benjamin Netanyahu. He's a great Jewish man. Um, he just shocked the world. I don't know why, but he shocked the world by saying that Israel being back in the land is a fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 37 and the Valley of Dry Bones. I don't know why that shocked the world. It's true. It is. And I'm glad he has eyes to see that. You know, the bones come back to life. She's back in the... Well, they look like they come back to life. They're standing up and, you know, they got all their the flesh and the sinew. And she looks like she's living, but she isn't really living yet, is she? She won't be alive to God. And that's where the Jews have had their temple. And that's where they insist they're going to have their temple again. But if they tried to go in today and take that place, whoa, World War III would immediately break out. Um, now, the Dome of the Rock, or the Mosque of Omar, was built back in 691 A.D. by a man named <clears throat> Abdal Malik, a Muslim, of course, and it was in an attempt to attract some of the revenue that the, the, the Muslim pilgrims were, were giving to Mecca and Medina. You know, he thought, well, we want some of that money. We want to draw the pilgrims here to Jerusalem. So he had the Dome of the Rock, the Mosque of Omar, built. But his attempt totally failed. Do you know that in the 1,500 years that the Arabs occupied the land of Palestine, not one Islamic leader or uh, Arab ruler ever took a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to go to the Mosque of Omar? Not one. So why has the status of this mosque changed so much in recent years? Well, the status of the Mosque of Omar changed only in the 1920s and the 1930s. And the man who brought about the very significant change was the late Yasser Arafat's uncle. 
How many of you remember Yasser Arafat? Raise your hand. Was kind of short little, tiny little guy, and he always looked like he needed to shave. <laughs> Not a very pleasant fellow. Well, it was his uncle who was Haj Amin al-Husseini. He was the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. And that's truly his title. I was like the Grand Mucky Muck. He was the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. And he, he in order to, to, um, to arouse Arab sentiment against the growing Jewish population in Israel and Jerusalem, and in order to justify to the Muslim world the location of the Mosque of Omar, Omar right there you know, on the Jewish temple site, he fabricated the story that it was on that site that Muhammad ascended up into heaven. No truth to that whatsoever. None, because Muhammad did not ascend into heaven. But you know, everything Satan does is a counterfeit. From the mosque, you can look across to the Mount of Olives, and who ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives? Jesus, the true, the true prophet, not Muhammad. He didn't ascend from there. But you know how lies, like evolution can be repeated so many times that people come to believe it. And to this day, now all the Muslims truly believe that that is the site from which Muhammad raised to heaven. So all of a sudden, the Mosque of Omar is very, very important to them. No one seems to question the fact that Jerusalem has ne had never been the scene of Islamic worship to that time. All those years up to the 1930s. None of the Muslims bothered to go to Jerusalem for anything holy. Nor does anyone seem to question that the, the fact that Jerusalem is only mentioned once in the Koran. Once. And it has to do with the Jewish temple being there. <laughs> Which, by the way, they deny. As I told you, they deny there was ever even a Jewish temple. Whereas Jerusalem is mentioned over 800 times in the Holy Scripture. Only once in the Koran. But who cares about truth, you know? <clears throat> the words Palestine and Canaan, other terms for Israel, are not even found in the Koran once. And yet Islam teaches that that land belongs to the Arabs, not the Jews. Therefore, Jewish possession of Israel and above all, Jewish, Jewish possession of Jerusalem are intolerable insults to the Muslim world. Their honor, they say, can only be restored by driving the Jews out of the land. Only then will Allah, you know, be honored. This is what it's all about, the conflict in the Middle East, which is true, isn't it? I mean, it's going on. <laughs> this is made-up stuff, and this is what has precipitated all of this. To even hear the suggestion that God promised the land to the Jews, which he did in the Abrahamic Covenant, he did. He promised the land to the Jews, not to the Arabs. And to even hear that God is currently carrying out the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise is blasphemy to the Arab world. If we had a Muslim in here who was a radical, well, even, you know, their religion does teach jihad and death to the infidel and death to the Jew. But um, 
I could be, you know, murdered right now for, for saying what I just said. They hate that. They hate that. So then, Daniel's prediction states that after Israel will have enjoyed both the military protection of the Antichrist and her reinstated temple worship for three and a half years, everything's going to come to a sudden halt in the middle. And by the fact that the Antichrist is able to stop everything in Israel, that fact alone demonstrates the great authority he is going to have by the time of the middle of the tribulation. But this action will merely be his first step in turning against Israel. He will become the greatest human enemy that Israel has ever, ever seen. And she has seen some vicious, vicious enemies. Adolf Hitler, uh, Joseph Stalin, uh, got one right now named Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. She's had some Antiochus epiphanies. He's terrible, but he's going to be the greatest enemy of all. Now, many people have wondered and speculated over the question of what it will be that suddenly motivates the Antichrist to stop the Jews from sacrificing in the temple. In fact, in the middle of the seven years of the tribulation, he will also turn, you know, against the apostate Christian church, you know, the great mother of harlots that is described for us in Revelation chapter 17, the harlot church. He's going to turn against her. And with the help of the false prophet, they are going to utterly destroy her, the the false church. He's going to turn against every single form of established religion and worship on the face of the earth. And why is he going to do this? Well, he's going to do it in order to pave the way for worldwide worship of himself, of course. (laughs) Of course, egomaniac. So what causes this sudden switch in this guy, you know, this sudden change in him? I mean, not that it's really a change because he's deceptive and evil all along, but it just isn't so evident. But there's something that definitely changes right there in the middle of the tribulation, right? That he turns on everybody, you know, the false church, Israel begins to persecute her, abominates the the temple, and what, what causes the change? Well, for the answer to that, we need to see what's going on in the spiritual realm. And John is the one who gives us the answer over in the book of Revelation. There is going to be a war going on in the heavenlies between Michael and the holy angels. This is, by the way, if you want to turn there, Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, verses <clears throat> 7 to 12. Um, A war in the heavens between Michael and the holy angels and the dragon, who is Satan, and the fallen angels. And this spiritual warfare takes place in the middle of the tribulation. We are told that Satan and his followers, his demons, fallen angels, will not prevail. They will lose. That's in verse 8. You see, look at verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought, and his angels, and prevailed not. The dragon lost, okay? And neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Okay, Dr. Warren Wearsby, who is a very respected Bible scholar, Bible commentator, radio preacher, etc., He suggests this, and this is very interesting. He suggests that Satan 
after being present at the judgment seat of Christ. You know, after the rapture of the church, the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, will be taking place in the heavens, the third, the third heaven. That is when the Lord Jesus will, it's not a, a judgment for salvation, because everybody there will already be saved, but it's a judgment of rewards. Some rewards will be lost as hay, wood, and stubble, you know, some as precious stones. The judgment seat of Christ will be taking place, and Satan, Warren Wearsby suggests, will be there. We know that he will still have access, you know, to the heavens, the third heavens, as Job tells us. He goes to and fro, and he's the accuser of the brethren. Um, but War, Warsby, Wearsby, Warsby, <laughs> Warren Wearsby suggests that, uh, that Satan will observe the judgment seat of Christ and will be absolutely furious to see that none of his attacks and his accusations against the saints will have affected any of the saints at all. That will not put even one single blemish on the bride of Christ. All these centuries of accusing the brethren, you know, he's the accuser of the brethren, and not one blemish on the bride, and he will be furious. It will be at that time that he is, as we just read, cast out of the third heaven. No more access, no more accusing of the brethren, and he comes down, and he is the prince of the power of the air, right? So he then engages, he's mad, he knows his time is short, he then engages in this spiritual warfare against Michael and all the holy angels, and he loses, and he is then cast down to earth. He's then just confined to this earth. And woe to the inhabitants of the earth, the scripture says, because the devil is just here. He has nowhere else to go, and he's just here. And I believe that this is when he possesses the Antichrist, the middle of the tribulation. The man was evil, but once he's possessed by, the, by Satan himself, I know not everybody agrees. Some say he's just empowered by Satan. I personally think he's possessed by Satan. And, uh, yeah. Um, but anyway, that's why. And who does Satan hate? Well, he's, he can't do anything anymore to the church. But he hates the woman who gave birth to the man-child. You read that in, in this chapter. He hates Israel. He hates the Jews. And he's going to you know, put up the abomination of himself. What has Satan always wanted? He's always wanted to be worshipped as God, hasn't he? Isaiah 14. He's always wanted to be as God. So by proxy, he will be worshipped through the Antichrist, the man he possesses. He'll set up that image of himself there, of the Antichrist in the temple. And then he will, he will really begin to persecute not only the Jews, whether they're saved or not saved, he'll persecute the Jews. And he'll persecute the true Christians, whether Jew or Gentile. All right, now I've lost because I did all that without looking. All right, and that brings us to the third Daniel 9.27 action of the evil prince to come. Gabriel said to Daniel, and this is, as I said, 9.27, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. After the Antichrist stops the Jews from offering their sacrifices to God in the reestablished temple, he is going to commit the pinnacle of all abominations. An abomination is a detestable thing. It's a despicable, detestable object of disgust. It's used in the Bible of anything having to do with idolatry. 
Now, since 2 Thessalonians 2.4 tells us that the Antichrist will exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, and since Revelation 13 tells us that the image of the beast will be made for all people of the world to bow and worship to, otherwise, you know, be killed if they don't, uh, we know that this detestable thing set up in the holy place, the holy of holies, is going to be an image of the Antichrist himself. All right, so um, let me skip some things because we're running out of time here. So the Antichrist abomination of desolation is going to be a key sign for the people of the tribulation to, it's going to be a key sign, a warning sign for them to do what? To flee, to get out of there. Um, and then, well, I'm going to skip that. It's, it's interesting, at the end of verse 25, Jesus is talking to his disciples. I guess I won't skip it. This is interesting, interesting. You know, he's talking to his disciples, and he says, Whoso readeth, let him understand. Isn't that weird? If somebody's talking to you and they say, Whoso readeth, you say, What are you talking about, Lord? You're talking to us. We're not reading anything. You see, Jesus there was, he was... Um, crossing the centuries. He was speaking across the centuries to the tribulation saints and to the Jews and saying, whoso readeth, you're going to have the word of God. When you read this, you know, understand. I'm giving you the warning. When the abomination of desolation is set up, do what? Get out of there. I need to get back to Matthew 24. It's at the end of verse 15, I think. Yeah. I'm in Matthew 24. I know I've got you totally confused. I'm in Matthew 24. At the end of verse 15, it says, Whoso readeth, let him understand. And then he gives them the warning. Get out of there. Nothing is worth slowing down your escape. You know, just, just get out of there as fast as you can. If you're up on your rooftop, don't bother to come down and get anything valuable out of your house. Just go. Uh, pray that it's not the Sabbath because... If there's any cars moving on the Sabbath, the Antichrist forces will notice, and you will be arrested if you refuse to bow to the image. Uh, pray that it won't take place in winter, because it's harder to travel if there's any bad weather, cold or snow. You know, he has compassion for those women who will be pregnant or are nursing, because that will hinder their speed in getting out of there. And he's just giving them warnings, saying basically, you know, nothing, nothing at all is worth um, slowing you down. The only chance of escape will be to take the warning words of Jesus seriously. I need to find my place a minute because there's something very important I wanted to discuss here. Um, okay. You know how, remember how he also warned the Jews or anybody willing to listen to him, um, which would be primarily Jews at this time, that when they would see an army beginning to come toward Jerusalem when she would be compassed about. This was over in Luke 21. And he told them, get out of there as fast as you can. And that was before the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem. He warned them. And those who listened to him and took heed to his warnings were actually preserved because they did escape and they survived that destruction. And here again, he does the same thing, doesn't he? He's warning the people ahead of time, the tribulation people, when you see the abomination. Actually, they could start counting off three and a half years and get out of there even before, couldn't they? <laughs> That's what I would do. I think I'd get out of there even before that. 
not wait till the last minute. Um, but he's warning. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us it's interesting to notice how the personal safety of his followers is a primary concern for the Lord. Isn't that why he took Adam and Eve out of the garden to begin with, you know, after they sinned because he didn't want them to eat of the tree of life and live forever in their sinful fallen condition? And, you know, he took Lot out of uh, Sodom, and, uh, Sodom before he destroyed it with fire and brimstone. Didn't he put Noah and his family safely into the ark before he sent down judgment? He's very concerned about the safety of his own. So then I say, what does that tell you and I about his concern for us, his church? Do you really think that Jesus would allow... You know, there are people who believe that the rapture doesn't happen until the middle of the tribulation or five-sixths of the way through the tribulation or after the tribulation that the church is removed. Do you really think that Jesus would not be consistent and be concerned about preserving his own from his own wrath? Think about it. It's not logical. We are called the body of Christ, right? He is the head. We are the body. Would Jesus basically decapitate himself? His head will be in heaven, but he will allow his body to be persecuted by his own wrath? What is the tribulation? Who opens the seals that begin it all? He does. It's all about the wrath of the Lamb. If he did that, would he not be um, guilty of wife abuse? Or, or, first of all, self-abuse, abusing his own body, or wife abuse, because we are also called the bride of Christ, right? What groom, what loving groom would allow his beloved wife, bride-to-be, to go through that awful time that he himself was responsible for? Wouldn't that be wife abuse? And plus, think about this. That's all about judgment, isn't it? Purification and judgment. Well, Jesus, we're one with him. We're one in Christ. We're his body. It would be like him. You know, he's already suffered once for all, right? Why would he have to go through judgment again? It, it, isn't, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's not consistent with the person of Jesus Christ. We will not go through the tribulation. I've given you two proofs alone this morning, and I have 98 more. But I won't keep you for that. But I... <laughs> All right. Um, according to Zechariah, not every Jew will take the Lord's advice and escape. Two out of every three Jews living in Israel during the time of the Great Tribulation will die as a result of the satanic anger of the Antichrist. Um, now, there's another thing he said there that uh, I need to talk about. He said, except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh... Where is it? Terry, help me out. 22. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. What that is saying in a nutshell, and I know in, in your notes I go into other details about things, but bottom line is that Jesus was saying that if God in eternity past had not determined to cut off the second half of the tribulation to those three and a half years or 42 months or 1,260 days, there would no flesh survive to go into the millennial kingdom. It is not saying that nobody would be saved. There would just be nobody living in a flesh body to populate the millennial kingdom and to reproduce and re, you know, multiply and fill the earth. Everyone would eventually be wiped out. 
if he hadn't predetermined to keep that to three and a half years. That's what he's saying there. And then I kind of already told you about what he says there when he starts talking about don't believe anybody if they come to you. Now he's speaking to tribulation believers and to Jews who have gone into hiding. I don't know. Some say maybe to Petra. Four million people can live in that city of Petra. You know, it's only got one narrow little entrance, and they could be in there. But, you know, then others say, well, what difference would that make in this day of rockets and bombs? Because they could just fly over and drop bombs on it. So, but, but they're preparing Petra with Bibles and stuff. Others say, well, maybe the Jews will just go into the dens and caves like David did when he was hiding from Saul all those years. Others say, well, maybe they'll go into the, the Sinai wilderness. Like God, you know, provided for Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. And, and maybe God will again provide Israel with manna from heaven and, and water from a rock. We don't know. This is all speculation. But while she's in hiding for those last three and a half years, there are going to be many false Christs and false prophets who are going to come to her and try to deceive her, the people, and say, the Christ has returned. We've seen him. He's hiding in the desert or he's, you know, in some uh, chamber somewhere. It's all safe now. You can come out. But they're deceptive. They're trying to get them out of hiding so they can be arrested. And if they don't bow to the image, they'll be killed. Okay? He says three times, I think he says, I'm telling you ahead of time, don't believe them, don't believe them, don't believe them. So the tribulation saints will be saying, well, how can we know then when the true Christ comes? And as I told you earlier, there will be no doubt about it. None whatsoever. Lightning will flash from one part of the earth to the other part of the earth, and every eye shall see him, and they can safely come out of their hiding because they will have endured to the end. But the bad news is for the unbelievers, because at the Battle of Armageddon, when the Lord, you know, with the word of his mouth, smites them, their bodies will lay there as carnage for the fowls of the earth. And that's what we end with in verse 28 when it says, For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. So what's the choice for us today where we are? Number one, truly make sure you're truly saved, born again, that you have trusted Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf for your sins. Just invite him into your heart. Lord, I want to be saved. I do believe you are who you said you were, and you died for me. And be born again, and be a member of his body, his church, his bride, and get out of here before all this begins. That's number one choice. Or number two choice, don't do that and go through hell on earth. Now, which would you choose? Whew. Not a difficult choice for me. <laughs> I made it long ago. Thank the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you again for this beautiful day that you have given to us. May we go out and enjoy it. And as we do enjoy it, may we encounter divine appointments with people that we might share the warning that you are soon coming for us and that this world is on the precipice of the most horrible, horrible days she has ever seen. I know people will scoff at us, and they'll laugh in our faces, but we need to sow the seed, and there will be those who will heed. Lord, I just pray we can be salt and light this week, everywhere we go. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you told us the end of the story, because otherwise we could be so frightened living in these perilous days. But we have the sure hope of your coming and eternity with you forever. And we thank you and praise you and worship you for that truth. Now go with every one of us, Lord, and bring us back again safely, we pray, next Tuesday, in Jesus' name. Amen.